Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I, for one, know that they're a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Howdy, my good friends. I hope you're doing well today, and thank you so much for dropping by. Seems like I've been getting a hold of right much here lately, and I appreciate your patience while I get things caught up. Uh, Thank you so much for sticking with me and for supporting the podcast and listening. Anyway, let's jump right into it. Clay County, Kentucky is about 100 or so miles southeast of Lexington, and it sits some of the most rugged terrain in the Appalachian Mountains. It also has quite a history of bloodshed, moonshining, and by golly, outright assassination. Sounds a lot like what we've talked about in southwest Virginia, don't it? It would be there in a cemetery off Arnett's Fork Road back in 2009 at one of the oddest stories I've dug up in a while would start. So come on in, have yourself a set down, and let me tell you about what happened and how the folks involved got it all figured out. At about 6.15 on the evening of Saturday, September 12, 2009, an Ohio man named Jerry Weaver was up to some family business. He had headed down Arnett's Fork Road there in the aforementioned Clay County, Kentucky. He and his wife Connie and their 19-year-old daughter Brittany in the car with him, and the Weaver clan were headed to the cemetery to visit the graves of some of the Miss Connie's relatives. They were riding in three different cars and Jerry followed the two in front of him which contained Miss Connie's parents plus her sister and brother-in-law and two other kids. They had uh, all come to Kentucky for a family reunion of sorts. When they got to the gravel road leading to the cemetery they had to stop on roadside because the metal gate blocked the entrance to Hoskins Cemetery which wasn't you know walk in the park to find in the first place but We've all probably seen those metal gates with a block the entrance and, you know, mounted between two poles and usually have a chain lock to keep folks out. And we've also probably noticed that at one point or another, these gates ain't attached to a fence. In a lot of cases, you, uh, you know, all you have to do is walk around them. And that would be the case here. In fact, there was a dried creek bag to one side of the gate and it made enough room for a vehicle to pass. So... They decided to do just that, and everybody but Jerry piled into his father-in-law's pickup truck, and, I mean, they went plum Appalachian and didn't just cram into the front. They jumped into the bed, too. So Jerry told him to go on ahead and then pulled out his 357 Magnum, being that it's better to be safe than sorry. He knew it wasn't safe to go into the woods without some kind of protection, but he also had seen things in these parts that he just didn't like. Now, Jerry started following the truck on foot because... You know, folks, it's uh, in the event somebody starts shooting, then the worst place in the world you can be is inside of a vehicle if you're going to try to shoot back. But Jerry kept his eyes up ahead, expecting anything from anywhere at pretty much any time, like you do when you're on watch out, you know, uh, when you got that train of thought going. Now then, as the truckload of family made the final turn into the cemetery, he heard Miss Connie let out a blood-curdling scream. Now Jerry must have thought, well, it's on now and he ran past the truck to see what the threat was. At first, he saw a red pickup truck sitting in a clearing, but as he walked around the empty vehicle just to make sure it was safe, he saw a figure of what looked like a man at the far corner of the clearing. The figure was completely motionless, and as Jerry got up to it, he realized that he was looking at a naked man hanging from a tree by his neck. 
the site froze Jerry where he stood. That was until his father-in-law, Clinton Hibbard, walked up beside him holding a 38. Now, folks, nothing says family love like your in-law walking up behind you with a gun and not fighting off the urge to use it on you. But it was about that time that they both felt like, well, they might have stumbled onto something that somebody wasn't supposed to see, and they're, maybe they're sitting there watching them. And the two men had a little discussion about what they ought to do, and it was a short one. Their consensus was get the hell out of there and call 911 before anybody, anything else or anybody else might happen here. So about an hour later, Jerry and his father-in-law met up with a state trooper at the Forest Ranger Station five miles away and from the scene, and he led him back to what they'd found. Jerry, finally feeling secure enough to, well, for the trained state trooper there and all, he walked up close to the man hanging in the tree, and he was pretty much horrified by what he saw man's wrist and ankles were bound with gray duct tape or red flag was stuffed into his mouth and held in place with a tape wrapped around his head a u.s census bureau id card was stuck to the tape that was near his right ear and written in what looked like black marker across the man's chest were three huge letters f-e-d fed the man's head hung down from the pressure of the rope and his feet just touching the ground the noose was made from white nylon rope that looked a whole lot like clothesline. The rope had been thrown over a tree branch just above him, then wrapped around a nearby tree before being tied off on the third one. The only thing that the man had on was a pair of socks. The state trooper ran the license plate on the red pickup truck Jerry had seen when he first got there, and the name came back to match the one on the census ID card stuck onto the duct tape by the man's ear. So. He came back uh, as William Sparkman, Jr. He was 51 years old and lived about 40 miles away in London. And that would be London, Kentucky, folks, in Laurel County, Kentucky, not London, England. The whole horrible ordeal haunted Jerry for quite a few weeks. He was sure that a census worker had been lynched and hung up as a warning for any other census worker that might want to try to get information out of folks in the hills of Kentucky. So Jerry's teenage daughter was so traumatized that she had to sleep in the same room with the, her mother and dad for or maybe on the floor there in the bedroom for a couple of weeks after. Just after a state trooper arrived on the scene and confirmed that there was indeed a death that needed investigating, Kentucky State Police Detective Donald Wilson was at home kicking off his weekend. That was until a call came in. It was for a deceased person found hanging in Hoskins Cemetery, of course, and Detective Wilson thought that there wasn't any reason to be in too big a hurry now after all the scene was secure and nobody's life was in danger. He'd been a state trooper for six years and two days earlier he'd been promoted to detective and now he was affixed to bite off his first case. He jumped in his unmarked car and headed on over to the scene. He got there at about 8.30. He remembered later thinking, holy shit, when he saw the first, I got the good first good look at the body, I guess there's nothing or no better of a way to start out than a homicide to, to walk right into the middle of something like this, along with the man being naked as a jaybird, the tape, the ID card, and the word on his chest, Detective Wilson noticed that Bill Sparkman's face was a bloody mess. A trickle of blood had leaked down his right ear and made him wonder if Bill had been had the beat down put on him before he wound up there and, and however it was he wound up. There was something else that caught Detective Wilson's attention. The tape binding Bill's ankles was tightly wrapped, but the tape around his wrist was loose and full of kinks and wrinkles. To top that off, a separate piece of tape ran over the top of Bill's head, holding his eyeglasses in place. Now, apparently, whoever did this didn't want him to miss any of it. Detective Wilson, along with the trooper that was first on the scene, went about searching the area with flashlights. About 10 feet from the body, they found three red rags matching the one stuffed in Bill's mouth. They also found a short piece of rope that looked like it had been cut from the one used to hang him. They thought, uh, well, when it was kept on across with a fine-tooth comb, they beginning to think that maybe they just cut that out, out of the rope to make it short enough to use. But they, was, uh, they didn't find anything to cut it with. It looked like whoever did that to Bill must have 
took it with them or maybe chunked it somewhere out in the woods where it'd never be found. It was time for Detective Wilson to break out the pad and pen, and he made notes about it all, including that there was too much rope or the knot was tied around the second tree. It looked like somebody had tied it, then loosened it, and retied it to get the height just right. The area around the body didn't look like a soul had been around it. No tire tracks or any vehicles other than bills were found within 40 yards of his body. In the bed of his truck laid a stack of clothes, neatly folded. I guess there's no need to be untidy about it. The stack included a pair of navy dress pants, a three-button polo shirt, gray fur-of-the-loom boxer briefs, and but no shoes. The police thought that it was odd that whoever did this hadn't burned the truck to get rid of evidence like you normally see in that area. Now, at about 9.30, two more senior officers, Sergeant Tom Aiken and Detective Mike Bolin, got to the scene. I guess they were there to help out the rookie detective or maybe check his math on what he was doing so far. Got to make sure everything adds up, I reckon. All four of them sifted through the dirt, grass, and leaves near Bill's body. Sergeant Aiken found a syringe and an empty vial about 25 feet away, which made him wonder if Bill had been slipped to Mickey Finn just to make him a little more pliable. Of course, they had to remember that the drug paraphernalia might just as easily been left there by somebody in the graveyard when they were using it as their own little crack house. Wasn't like anybody there was going to say anything about it, I reckon. But Detective Wilson had on his hands what it was known as an equivocal death, a case in the manner in which the manner was unknown. A seasoned homicide detective, any of them, will tell you that an equivocal death investigation can't be closed until all they, so they walk through all the scenarios but one and rule them out. Now, Detective Wilson kind of went over them in his mind. He thought, well, maybe it was autoerotic asphyxiation, which would be an accident. Maybe it was an elaborate suicide, which, or maybe a forcible hanging, which would be murder, or maybe they hung the body up there after they'd killed him, which also would be murder. But when details of Bill's death erupted all over the media, Clay County was yanked into the spotlight. The news cycle was spitting stories and making it sound like right-wing extremists was crawling all over the mountains looking for people who didn't see it their way and they were just going to kill them, especially if said person was a government representative. I remember this, and I remember thinking that the media had already made their minds up about what happened based on uh, pretty, pretty much no evidence at all. In Manchester, which happens to be the county seat of Clay County, <clears throat> local folks were talking it up in the Huddle House, which was a country cooking place where folks went to drink coffee in the morning or maybe get them some of them gravy biscuits that everybody likes, including me, and or maybe something along those lines. But some folks thought Bill had stumbled on a pot patch or a meth lab and had been permanently shut up by drug dealers. Others, well, they thought that he might just have knocked on the wrong door in the place where people just didn't cotton to the government at all, especially the ones with the census badges on. Now, despite Clay County's violent history, which ranked right up Earth Hardin County at one point, if not worse, murders were pretty much rare back in those days and still are today, even though drugs are the biggest cash crop in the area. Anyway, by 11 o'clock, Back at the cemetery, the night was pitch black with the lights of the police cruisers lighting up the woods like a Christmas tree. Now, Detective Wilson and the other investigators walked circles around the body, searching up to about 300 feet away for additional evidence, and they found a frothy warm cup of Jack squat. By the time Detective Wilson helped the coroner cut Bill's body down, it was nearly midnight. So Detective Wilson looked through the windows of Bill's truck and saw evidence that it had been ransacked. Papers were thrown all over the place. The glove box and the console were open. The passenger seat was leaning forward like somebody had been rummaging around the back seat. The investigators decided to wait until morning to search the interior of the truck because the night was too dark and they didn't have the proper equipment with them. While the men waited for a tow truck, Sergeant Aiken found the keys to Bill's truck on the ground underneath it. That's about the time they all headed back to their home base in London where Sergeant Atkin got on a call with Nextel hoping they could pinpoint the location of Bill's phone. Uh, no luck. A Nextel rep said the phone was either turned off or flat out of service. It looked like 
whoever did it to him took his phone and did away with it. Now, armed with a search warrant, Detective Wilson and three fellow officers arrived at Bill's little white ranch house at about 6.20 the next morning and found the driveway empty. And there was no sign of a forced entry and that anybody, or anybody was even home. Now, Detective Wilson opened the front door and went in. Cobwebs hung on the walls and the corners and a thick layer of dust covered parts of the floor and shelving. Now, clothes were thrown all over the master bedroom. The house was a bit untidy, but there was no indication, actually, that it had been a struggle that took place. It just looked like a lonely guy lived there by himself. The, uh, the team moved through the house methodically, and in the kitchen they found Bill's Jack Russell Terrier and uh, several bags of dog food. There was a printer in the kitchen table with the cords attached, but there wasn't no computer on the other end. At about the same time, just about 100 miles north, a forensic pathologist was starting on Bill's autopsy at the state police's central lab in Frankfurt. The pathologist, Dr. Kristen Rolfe, determined that the preliminary cause of death to be asphyxiation. The blood that had leaked out of Bill's ear was the result of insects trying to bore into his head. Now, Dr. Rolfe was had also found traces of red fibers stuck to the duct tape around Bill's wrists and ankles. The lack of bruising around the taped areas led her to believe that Bill hadn't fought against his binding, which was pretty much a significant find. It meant that he was probably already dead or unconscious before he was bound up and strung up, and he had deliberately, well, maybe strung himself up. But Dr. Roth noticed that the other odd thing, Bill's colon had been apparently cleansed by an enema. Of course, the first thing that was brought up after that was that Bill might have been involved in some type of homosexual activity. She ordered a rape kit to be performed. And at about 8 o'clock the next morning, Monday, Detective Wilson called the FBI's regional office in London and set up a meeting. Since Bill could, couldn't have, or could have been a target, I guess, because of his gov government affiliation, it's hard to spit out. But anyway, Detective Wilson knew that the FBI would want him to hunk of the action. So he spoke to Special Agent Tim Briggs and described the condition of Bill's body, telling him about the letters scribbled on Bill's chest. Needless to say, Special Agent Briggs was pissed. He made it clear that Detective Wilson wouldn't, shouldn't have waited a whole two days before cutting him off a piece of that cake. The FBI immediately opened a joint investigation with the state troopers and requested assistance from its evidence recovery unit in Louisville. After meeting Detective Wilson with what was left of his ass, after the FBI got done chewing on it, he drove to the lab in Frankfurt to drop off some evidence, which included Bill's clothes, the scraps of rag and rope from the ground, and some duct tape from Bill's body. There's not much better place in the world to find fingerprints than on duct tape, but this time they didn't find a single one. Whoever did it had most likely worn gloves because they didn't find a single print on any of it. About all they managed to do was to take up an entire day of everybody's time, but, well, that due diligence has still had to be done. But Detective Wilson got an interesting phone call from Sergeant Aiken. He Bright and early on the next morning, that was, and Bill's 20-year-old son, Joss, had shown up at the state police London Post waving around some documents, and the way he was acting didn't sit well, with, uh, and it struck the officers on duty as pretty odd. One of the documents what, that he was fanning around was a just-in-case letter that was written by none other than his father. Josh had found it buried in the filing cabinet. Bill Sparkman, as it turned out, had been diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma back in 2007, but had beat cancer and was cancer-free for the past year. The letter spelled out step-by-step step what Josh was supposed to do with the family's finances if Bill passed away. While meeting with Sergeant Aiken, Josh asked what, uh, or Sergeant Aikens asked Josh if, he's, if Bill had a gun, and, and maybe Josh had found it, but he couldn't remember exactly what kind it was, but he was pretty sure it was a twenty-two pistol and it was missing. So Bill wasn't crazy about guns, but said a person never knew what or who he might run across in Clay County's backwoods. Josh said Bill kept the gun in his truck. Later that afternoon, FBI agents climbed all over Bill's truck like it belonged to El Chapo. They found a laptop briefcase with no laptop, 
that wasn't all. It was missing Bill's gun, wallet, and phone were gone, too. They did find his credit card holder, but, uh, well, the cards, they, they were gone, too. No blood or other body fluids were found. The dashboard and steering wheel had all those red fibers all over them, and that meant that the surfaces had all been wiped down with the red rags found stuffed in Bill's mouth, most likely to eliminate fingerprints. Federal agents then pounced on Bill's house the next morning because apparently the Kentucky State Police are inept in their eyes and uh, probably missed a whole, a whole lot of valuable evidence. They did manage to find a fixed blade knife with a pair of black cargo pants that belonged to Josh in his old bedroom. When they took a close look at the pants, they found what appeared to be the same red fibers seen on Bill's truck. They also found a large syringe with an unknown substance on the plunger. None of that was definitive proof that Josh had anything to do with it, but yeah, when you put everything together, it didn't look good for the boy. Detective Wilson did a bit of digging on him and found out that Josh was a misfit who'd had a rocky relationship with his dad. He was a high school dropout. He'd fallen in with the wrong crowd as a teen, and according to the FBI, he had trouble with drugs. Folks close to Bill knew that he'd lost control of Josh, who had an affinity for wrecking cars and screaming at the top of his lungs, blaming his father for it all. But it certainly looked like Detective Wilson had his first person of interest just four days after Bill was found cinched up by the neck in a tree. Now, Bill had adopted Josh back in 1991 when he was two years old and had been living with a foster family in Orlando, Florida. Bill was 33 then and single, and a Boy Scout director stationed in Texas, so adoption was considered out of the norm for a person of his standing at the time, and it's uh, pretty much the same as it is today, too. The Boy Scouts were actually a big part of Bill's life. He grew up the oldest son of a middle-class middle neighborhood in Mulberry, Florida. His father was a high school principal, and his dad worked, or his mother was a high school principal, and his dad worked as an executive in a big national furniture chain. Bill did excellent in school, but scouting was where his real passion was. He liked the real-time training and he got <clears throat> that he got from the scouts on things like how to build a fire out of wet wood and how to make tea out of dandelions and pine needles. Uh, Bill went through the scout ranks fast and became an Eagle Scout at age 16, which was just three years after joining. Folks, that's pretty blame impressive. Bill's family wasn't surprised when he decided to forego the college route and become a professional scout. He went on to oversee scouting programs all over Florida. Bill showed very little interest in, in about anything else, including the dating scene. The Boy Scouts were his entire life. While he was in the middle of adopting Josh, Bill was promoted to assistant director of the Order of the Arrow, which is the Boy Scouts National Honor Society, which took, the, took him to the Boy Scouts National Headquarters in Irvine, Texas. The very next year, 1993, Bill accepted a distinctive executive or directive executive position in Lexington, Kentucky. Let me see if I can get that out. And that's when he and Josh, who was now his son, moved to London about 75 miles away. But life with Josh didn't go exactly like Bill thought it would, and after he was found dead, Bill's mother and others who knew him immediately suspected Josh and or his posse. It didn't take Mama Sparkman long to find out that Bill had made Josh a beneficiary of one of his two life insurance policies. Bill, of course, had laid out all of this in his just-in-case letter, and Josh was now waving around like a get-out-of-jail-free card. It certainly looks like Josh had a motive to Bill's family anyway. On Thursday, which was September 17th, just after lunchtime, Detective Wilson's teammate, Detective Doug Boyd, hopped in his Crown Vic and set out for Cookville, Tennessee. Josh had been locked into a statement where he told investigators he worked at a fast food chain called Church's Chicken. And the week before his father was found, he told him that he worked a uh, you know, closing shift every day but September 12th, which just happened to be the day that Bill's body was cut down from the tree. Uh, Josh said that his car was broken down earlier in the week and he'd been catching rides with friends to get around and hadn't left Cookville that entire week. Uh, Detective Boyd was there to find out if the alibi held water and, and make sure it didn't stink to high heaven. Of course, his 
first step was Church's chicken, and Josh's manager confirmed that he was had worked the whole week, but not on September 12th. And she gave Detective Boyd a timesheet, which listed Josh, Josh as working the evenings just like he said he did. And I'm sure he got him a sample of some of that fried chicken while he was there. Uh, may have a little bit of respect problem with him if he didn't. But Detective Boyd then Boyd then took a jaunt over to Josh's house where he had sat down with his roommate and friend. Her name was Gracie Thomas. Josh and Gracie had been together since they'd first met through a church group about 10 years earlier. She treated Josh like her little brother. Gracie confirmed to Detective Boyd that Josh's green Chevy was tore up from the floor up and wouldn't run. She said that she'd seen him every day of the week of, of Bill's death. Then while Detective Boyd was talking to Gracie, a skinny, frail-looking 20-year-old Lowell Adams walked into the state police station back in London. Just a day earlier, investigation or investigators had swung by his house and told his mother that they needed to talk to him about the man they found swinging from a tree in Hoskins Cemetery. Now, Lowell's name was mentioned in the letter that Josh had been fanning around, and it just so happened that Bill's just-in-case letter had listed Lowell as the beneficiary of one of his insurance policies. Now, Bill wrote that Lowell sometimes accompanied him while he performed his census duties for security purposes. Well, now, no wonder they wanted to talk to the young man. But Lowell had a seat because he knew this was going to take a while, like it usually does when the police drag you down to talk to you, especially one he knew it had listed him as a beneficiary on his life insurance. He knew really well it was going to take a while. But Lowell talked to Sergeant Akins, another detective, and of course not to be left out, an FBI agent right there in the hot box at the London headquarters. He told the investigators that he and Josh had been good friends up to the 10th grade when they started drifting apart. Bill became a friend of the family and actually tutored Lowell in math. For the last two years, Bill had paid him seven fifty an hour in cash for security and his help getting around the mountains without getting lost. Lowell also lugged around all the census paperwork, which the FBI agent pointed out was a violation of official census policy because they can't let nothing slide, can they? Well, well at least with us common folk, got to be an elected official or one of their family members to get by stuff like that. But Lowell went on to say that Bill would always bring along his government-issued laptop, a personal laptop and his pistol, which he kept in a hard plastic case in the truck. Lowell admitted that he was uncomfortable the first time he went with Bill. They just didn't have much in common, but after a few trips, they'd become pretty good friends. Then the detectives got into a discussion and talking about Bill's romantic life. Lowell said that the, he and Bill never discussed it. Lowell didn't know if he ever dated anybody, or, but he knew Bill had a strained relationship with his son, Josh. Lowell said that the last time he'd went with Bill on a census run was on September 5th, exactly one week before he was found swinging from a tree. Now, Lowell had missed a call from Bill on the 8th, but he didn't leave a message and he never spoke to him again. Now, the interview with Lowell gave him a good idea of Bill's daily operation, but really didn't give him any closer figured out just what the heck happened. They then scheduled Lowell for a polygraph. Gotta make sure that he ain't hiding something, I guess. But Bill did have a whole lot of friends, or didn't have a whole lot of friends before he moved to Kentucky, and once he got there, he didn't make very many either. Just after Josh started school, Bill resigned from his Boy Scout post and later started volunteering at his son's elementary school. He was determined to help Josh any way he could because he was struggling in the classroom. In fact, since Bill was there so much anyway, they finally offered him a job at Johnson Elementary School as a teaching aide. It didn't pay much, but that was the position he held for nine years. He was the type of guy that loved being where he could help kids, and the kids loved him. And so, and so did his fellow teachers to a certain extent, even though they didn't did think he was a bit of a whack-a-doodle socially. They just kind of an outcast, standalone kind of guy. And that didn't mean anything bad about him. He just kind of off the wall to them. But outside work, Bill was a homebody. He liked to surf the web and play Sudoku. And he had a coin collection and collected Star Trek memorabilia. He spent Friday evenings on the phone with his mother 
Well, two of them would watch the TV game show or you're smarter than a fifth grader. Money was always tight in the Sparkman house. Josh was a huge financial drain after he left school and got his GED, but he could never hold down a job and was constantly nagging his dad to replace the latest vehicle that he'd wrapped around a tree pole or maybe another vehicle. Bill's mother was always sending him cash loans to help him make ends meet, and by golly, he always paid her back, she says. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. Now came 2005 when Bill started supplementing his income by becoming a part-time census bureaucrat, which is a position that is absolutely adored by all of us mountain folk. Don't take my word for it. You can ask anybody from the hills about how loved they are, and they'll be glad to tell you. One of Bill's closest colleagues at Johnson Elementary, who was a retired state trooper named Gilbert Archiato, repeatedly warned him to be careful. Mr. Archiato had patrolled Clay County. He knew it was a rough place. Bill didn't pay much attention, though. He thought that everybody was just like him, just a happy-go-lucky man about the mountains. He was just kind of naive about people really being bad. About lunchtime on September 17, 2009, the Manchester Police Department phone rang. It was Willie Jean Moore, 46-year-old resident of Arnett's Fork Road, whose arrest record dragged the floor and made her a frequent flyer at the local law enforcement. She told an officer that she'd had information about the death of the census worker who they found dangling from a tree like a Christmas ornament last week. Now, when Miss Moore showed up at the police station, Detective Wilson and a FBI agent were waiting. She walked into a small room looking like she'd been buried in the salt flats for about a month, dug up and beat with a logging chain, but sounded like an auctioneer when she was talking. She was talking so fast. She told him that the Hodgkin's Cemetery was a favorite hangout for local tweakers. Tweaker in this case meaning the meth head. And Miss Moore said that uh, for the last few weeks, she'd been seeing an SUV that belonged to one of the, one of the tweakers named Robbie Collins parked at the cemetery while she assumed he was getting his tweak on. Now, she said young Mr. Coggins was acting funny just before Bill was found dead at about 9 o'clock in the evening. On September 9th, she said she saw him riding an ATV down on its Fork Road before turning off the road and riding to the creek bed toward the cemetery. Now, at 7 o'clock the next day, she said that he, <clears throat> he and a friend stopped by her house and they were plumb off the charts whack-a-doodle. They told her that they had to get out of town for a while, and Mr. Collins gave her his cell phone number and asked her to call him every few days and let him know what the talk around town was. And Bill's body was found two days later. While Miss Moore's story was intriguing to Detective Wilson, he didn't think much of it. I don't blame him. It kind of sounds to me like a tweaker telling on another tweaker for tweaking too much and leaving her out of the tweaking fun and then running off with all the tweakings. But when it comes to a situation like that, a tweaker got to do what a tweaker got to do, I reckon. That was until they found out that Mr. Collins had sure enough skipped town. That's when Detective Wilson figured he probably ought to look at him. And being that the fun never ends when you're working a murder case, while he was on his way to interview one of Mr. Collins' friends, he was flagged down by a tow truck driver that told him that a few days before Bill's body was found, he'd got behind a slow-moving Toyota pickup truck and saw what he believed a pair of hands to be bound together with duct tape rising out of the truck bed amid a group of three to four, five, maybe five people. And Detective Wilson couldn't be sure what the man saw, but he was confident that it was most likely a bunch of teens riding around playing jokes on people like tow truck drivers, being that nobody was missing and Bill hadn't <clears throat> struggled against any restraints. Now, besides, one of Bill's neighbors had reported him seeing him on Wednesday, so that was pretty much somebody else doing something else. It sure wasn't Bill, but the next day, a confidential source slinked up out of the woodwork and told the FBI agent that the word on the street was that Bill had been a rat for the feds, so somebody grabbed him and made him do the hip dance in the cemetery. Now, investigators knew that if something like that had got to the media, they'd smell something burning. 
and it'd be their investigation being burnt to the ground from getting hindered by more stories crawling up out of the ground than they could be tied to and the mystery folks showing up on TV providing the real inside story of how the mad hillbillies lynched a bureaucrat in a cemetery. Now, I reckon that would be the, from the hillbilly experts, I guess, that the networks keep on hand like to do the constitutionalist and the legal experts. Now, the media had already got hold of the story and ran nuts with it. Like I said earlier, they were all talking about how Bill had been killed by a bunch of right-wing nutballs out of control to extremists who got no love for the government. Of course, the investigators on the case didn't buy it and were doing the same thing I was, which was watching the media self-destruct with bad information all the while telling it like it ain't. All the, <clears throat> all that being said, Detective Wilson did his best to tune it all out, all the caterwauling and the great national teeth being put on the news all day, every day. His job, no matter who thinks any different, was to follow the evidence wherever it goes. Now, despite all the warnings about wild, dangerous hillbillies, Bill loved his census job, and he believed education was his true calling, though. He wanted to become a full-time teacher so bad that he could taste it. During his nine years at the school system, he'd seen several other teachers do what he, what he did, or, you know, and then worked their way into a full-time position after going back to school to get teaching degrees. Now, that's when he learned about Western Governors University Online College with uh, offices being in Salt Lake City, Utah. And he got all excited. In the summer of 2005, he signed up. Two years into his classes, Bill went to see his doctor for an ingrown toenail. Now, if you've ever had one of them things to the point where going to the doctor with it, all I can say is, God have mercy on you because what they got to do to fix it ain't for the squeamish. But anyway, that doctor's visit led to a discovery of a cyst on the side of his neck because, like we always say in the mountains, if you're fine going into the doctor's office, don't worry. They'll find something wrong and you'll be sick leaving. But it alarmed the doctor to the point that Bill was sent directly to the hospital not to pass go and not to collect $200. The diagnosis came 45 days later. Bill had stage 3 non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It was nearly November of 2007, and he was just a few weeks away from graduating. Stage 3, folks, means that it's growing and it's possibly spread to other organs, and that ain't good. Bill, of course, was shook up, all right, you know, right smart, but his diagnosis wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't devastated by his diagnosis, and in fact, he planned on beating it and then go on to write a book about how my big toe saved my life. Bill started chemotherapy that month. The sessions went on for four months. He lost his hair and got a lot of his strength, but Bill kept right on trucking, still working at Josh's old school and working on his studies. By December 2007, <clears throat> he graduated with a Bachelor's of Science in Mathematics education. His attitude and determination inspired the staff at Western Governors so much that they picked him to be a commencement speaker, but by the time the ceremony rolled around in February 2008, Bill's blood cell count was so low that his doctors told him that he'd better not fly. So, being that he wasn't about to miss it, Bill decided, well, he's just going to drive the 1,735 miles to Salt Lake City, and that he did, and delivered his speech. He got his sheepskin and skated right back home. He literally made that trip and got back safely despite everything. That April, Bill got some news. He found out that his cancer was in remission. Bill figured that it was time to get back to his goal of getting that permanent teaching job he was after. So on September 28, 2009, Lowell Adams was sitting back in the FBI office in London waiting to start his polygraph test. That's when he decided to come clean. Now, well, here we go. During the pre-test interview, Lowell told the polygrapher that he wanted to correct his earlier statement, that he dropped the bomb. Bill had talked to him several times about killing himself. In fact, on Saturday before he was found dead, Bill told Lowell that he was going to do it on Wednesday. In August, Bill had told Lowell that his cancer had come back and experimental drugs are not working anymore, and he didn't expect to make it beyond October. 
Bill said that he wanted to commit suicide to spare himself the agony of dying from cancer. And that wasn't all Lowell had to say. He, Bill told him that he'd already picked a place in the woods in Clay County to off himself. And he had it all planned out. He intended to hang himself by throwing a rope around a tree, attaching cinder blocks to his feet, and jumping down a hill. He was going to tie his hands behind his back to make it look like somebody murdered him. To round out his master illusion, he was going to get rid of his gun, laptop, and wipe down his truck to get rid of all the fingerprints. Folks, Bill told Lowell that he had already practiced by putting a bag over his head just to see if he had the guts to go through with it. He wasn't sure he could pull it off all by himself, so he asked Lowell to help. Lowell said that he refused, and on Saturday, Bill asked Lowell to come get drunk with him later that day as a big send-off. Bill went to and picked up a whole case of Budweiser, but Lowell turned him down saying that he had to go to work the next day and didn't want to have to go green around the gills. So Lowell said that he was concerned people might think that he was uh, in on it or that he and Bill were in a sexual relationship together. But once Lowell was done coming clean and all, the polygraph test was put on hold because it wouldn't be accurate after going through all of that. The polygrapher wrote out Lowell's three-page statement on white computer paper and Lowell signed it, signed his name to it. And the Detective Wilson found out about Lowell's statement the next morning in a meeting at the FBI office. From the outside looking in, it was a little bit hard to think that after beating the cancer and graduating with a degree, Bill would be the, the, so despondent and cancer-riddled as a sick man to, that, that, that Lowell had actually described. But Lowell's statement fit near about all the case's evidence, and... To top it all off, Lowell didn't describe every last detail. That would have been a little bit too good and would have seemed suspicious. Suspicious. If <clears throat> it had been any better, he'd have to have been there to see it. So Lowell took the polygraph test eight days later. His scores were so good that it nearly knocked the polygrapher's hat in the creek. The evidence pointing to suicide was beginning to build up, but Detective Wilson still couldn't come to a definitive answer on some of the physical evidence that couldn't be explained. For example, the letters on his chest, a small length of rope, the missing knife, and whatever else, to use, or maybe whatever else was used to cut uh, cut the rope, I, how exactly he pulled it off, but that was one of the big questions. And no matter how you look at what Bill had done so far, he was still working three low-paying jobs, a substitute teacher, after-school staffer and a census taker. His goal was finding a full-time teaching job, but Bill, uh, you know, kept a close eye on the openings posted in the Laurel County Schools website while months crept by and he was still struggling to make it. He finally saw that a math teacher position opened up at a high school near his house. Bill told everybody that, listen, how bad he wanted it. When he learned that the job had gone to somebody else, folks around him said that it just plumb crushed him. Things weren't going at all well at home either. In August of 2008, Josh was arrested and dragged in for receiving a stolen gun from a friend. A judge sentenced him to six months house arrest and had him outfitted with one of them electronic leg shackles. Now, Bill decided that he had finally had enough. A few months after Josh's house arrest ended, Bill told him it was time for him to make like a stick and beat it. Now, after Josh moved in with Gracie Thomas in the summer of 2009, she would hear him talking to his dad like a dog over the phone. For years, Gracie had watched Josh walk all over his dad, and Bill still hadn't cut him off. And I guess he felt some guilt over having him leave and kept adding money to Josh's prepaid Walmart card. If Bill hadn't given up on Josh by now, I guess he probably never was. According to Gracie's mom, Bill lived and breathed for the little boy he called Sparky. And uh, at 10.30 in the morning on October 8, 2009, at a meeting at the state police headquarters in Frankfurt, Emily Craig addressed uh, Detective Wilson and the other investigators. She was a renowned anthropo- anthropologist. 
Dr. Craig had been asked to review the case. She started by suggesting that the time of death, given the contents of Bill's stomach and the condition of his body, um, could have been as early as Wednesday night. She said that a fractured bone in his neck was healing, and that was a sign that the injury had occurred in the past and it had nothing to do with his death. Folks, this supported Lowell's claim Bill had actually practiced suffocating himself. Now, Dr. Craig's next finding was by far the most significant. While studying the lettering on Bill's chest, Dr. Craig, who was also a professional illustrator by chance, noticed a mark at the top of the letter E. It looked like her like a, what illustrators referred to as a bead, a drop of ink that appears at the end of any marker, stroke, and a non-porous surface. At the bottom of the letter, she noticed that the black ink was evenly dispersed, which signals the start of a stroke. The first letters had the same features, or the other letters had the same features. And this, uh, doc, uh, this Dr. Craig indicated that the letters on Bill's chest had been drawn upside down. That indicated, in all likelihood, Bill had scrawled F.E.D. on his chest by himself. Now, Lowell's account was further supported by two other discoveries revealed at the meeting. Dr. Rolfe, the forensic pathologist, backed off from her original statement that Bill's colon had appeared to have been cleansed. Instead, she said that it was just simply empty, and the toxicology report showed no signs of any drug that would knock Bill's ass over tea kettle. So a few days after the meeting, Detective Wilson brought Bill's glasses to the Walmart in London and found out why they were uh, what they were made to correct. They were made to correct 2400 vision. 2400. That's, that's blind, folks. Now, everything started to make sense. Bill was blind as a bat and wouldn't have been able to pull it all off without his glasses. So he just taped them on to be able to see. Now, on October 22nd, as a follow-up, Josh Sparkman and Robbie Collins were called in to take polygraph tests and they both passed. No link was found between the fibers on Josh's pants and the red rags crammed in Bill's mouth. In Mr. Collins' case, cell phone records confirmed that he was nowhere near Hoskins Cemetery the week Bill went missing. The red rags contained only Bill's DNA and a small piece of rope found on the ground contained a partial DNA profile that was consistent with Bill Sparkman only. So on October 26th, the lead investigators had one final meeting. At this point, the group agreed that all leads had been exhausted and the evidence pointed to only one scenario. Bill had killed himself, but staged the scene to create an appearance that he was lynched. Tape around his wrist and ankles and the rag in his mouth, the census ID taped to his forehead, the letters on his chest, it was all a ruse. Bill wanted the police to believe he was murdered because he worked for the government, and there was only one question left, and that was why. Lowell said that Bill told him he wanted to kill himself rather than die from cancer. But Bill's two cancer doctors said that uh, they didn't have a speck of cancer in him anywhere. The interviews with the FBI, and they said Bill was told on April 2008 that his cancer was in remission. In fact, on his last visit on August 13th that year, his chemotherapy report was taken out. The doctors gave Bill a signed clean bill of health and of course, their bill was going along with it. And without a suicide note, being certain why somebody would take their own life is impossible. Detective Wilson came to the conclusion that financial problems pushed him over the edge. Bill's had a hard time keeping up with his house payments, and his house was beginning to go into foreclosure. His financials were in such a mess that he started taking out credit cards to pay off other credit cards, which compounded his debt. At the time of his death, Bill owed more than $50,000, according to FBI. Then there was the life insurance policies, payable to Josh and Lowell. Each was valued at $300,000, and each went into effect in, in 2009. Both policies were for accidental death only. They wouldn't even pay out for a suicide. The investigators believed Bill's inability to find a teaching job and left him completely crushed. Josh couldn't hold down a job and was in and out of trouble with the law. 
the future just didn't seem to be there for Bill. The detective Wilson believed that Bill saw the, his <clears throat> dramatic final act as the only way to spare his son a lifetime of financial hardship, and it was all just as simple as that. The investigators called a press conference for November 24th at 2 p.m. that day in the conference room at the state police lab in Frankfurt, Captain Lisa Rodzinski ticked off the evidence pointing to suicide. Detective Wilson stood right beside her and looked on. Captain Rodzinski took her time while discussing the most explosive element of the case, the three letters scribbled on Bill's chest. With a black marker, she drew each of the dry, each of the letters on a dry erase board from bottom to top, emphasizing the bead at the top of each one. Now, describing Bill's final moments, Captain Rodzinski didn't mince words. She pointed out that his body was in contact with the ground almost to his knees, and to have survived, all Bill had to do at any time was just simply stand up. I remember watching this as a as this bunch of so-called inept backwoods hillbilly cops systematically dismantled the theories being spit all over TV news. And just like that, not another word from the press about it. I reckon they ran off to lick their wounds in the dark of the tall grass somewhere or maybe go find something else to get wrong, completely unaware that every time they do, that their credibility goes down the toilet just a little bit further. And... That was now 15 years ago, and we can all see where it is now. After the investigation was closed, Bill house, Bill's house was foreclosed on, and Josh seemed to drop out of sight. Because Bill's death was through to suicide, the insurance money was never paid out to either boy. On September 8th, four days before he was found dead, Bill called Sarah Upchurch, his lead field representative at the Census Bureau. Bill told her that he planned to spend the next two days doing census runs in Clay County and nearby Knox County. He didn't specify exactly where he was going, and Sarah had no reason to ask him. Bill was his usual chipper self that day, as she said. At about noon next day, Linda Wilder stepped out of our house to walk her dog and saw Bill's red truck heading down the street. Linda lived at the bottom of Bill's block at in 16 years, they'd probably spoken three or four times. Bill waved to her, and she waved back, and it was the last time Bill Sparkman was seen alive. Police believe that's when he was headed out to the cemetery to end it all. Folks, I know that sometimes we all get down. Sometimes things seem like there's just no point to it all. If there's ever a time that anybody feels that the only way out is to end it all, do me a favor and pick up your phone and dial 988. Trust me, whether you believe it or not, there's folks out there that need you in their lives and love you dearly. You're more important than you think, and there's always a way to fix anything. I hope you got something out of our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to follow us on to get notified for new episodes. Come on, join us on Facebook group, Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend Podcast, where we talk about anything Appalachian or whatever else you like to talk about. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder, Mystery, or Legend, and I will see you then.